Yo. There's certain things that I can talk to you about that I can't really with my dad. I don't think we should talk about this. Uh, welcome. This is again Lynn and Jen, and we're podcasting today about the really interesting and stimulating subject of sex, gender, and power. So, uh, welcome, Jen, to this stimulating discussion. <laughs> Thanks, Lynn. I'm excited to be here today. It's great. Today, um, to begin, I think uh, it's important to say that this is a subject that we've really noticed in our therapies with uh, patients and that many of them are struggling uh, with issues of power and uh, in their sexual relationships and they're really unaware of how the power aspects are affecting the sexual aspects of the relationship. So this, I think at your suggestion really, it was to go into the subject a bit more and to help really others through conversation understand how sex and power fit together. Yeah, I mean, I'm really excited to talk about this because I think it's something I've been mulling over recently, too, particularly as I work with a lot of women clients and also men. But I think also the idea that it it isn't just about sex and power. It really extends into the greater arena. I just see that it affects the sexual arena so much because we even don't see it kind of in the larger sphere. And so then in a area that's as taboo as the sexuality component of our lives, I think a lot of it just is never addressed. Right. And what you're you're really saying, Jen, I think, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but is that uh, power aspects can be uh, readily uh, accessible. You can see them as in a powerful dictator who's taking control of others, or they can be more subtle in the sphere of really influence and even disguised or hidden. Um, so there's all different types of uh, arrangements really about power. And that's certainly true for sexual relationships. Absolutely. And I think maybe we can even start off by discussing, you know, when you talk about power in relationships, a lot of times what people think of what comes to mind immediately is this power over mm-hmm. and that's seen as the standard is that kind of what you see the status quo i think that happens well we live in uh pc san francisco so maybe to start with that but uh so many of our our patients that we see are struggling with issues in this environment uh but uh we also have patients from all over the world with uh different ways of uh, broadcasting today you can access patients and see them on on facetiming and other things but really to start with a basic definition of power which i think is universal and that is power is the ability to control influence and affect the behaviors thoughts and feelings of others yeah. You know, so to really see, you know, control, influence, and effect are all different levelers there. Mm-hmm. And uh, thoughts and feelings and behaviors are also different. They're different aspects, I think, of people. So there's a lot involved in power. Mm-hmm. And then you apply that or, you know, fit that into sexual relationships and it becomes pretty complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, when we started talking about this subject, um, I was struck uh, as a longtime, you know, practitioner of some Buddhist thinking and meditation, um, a person who's done a lot of work in the area of power and not in the power over area, uh, more of what is called personal or authentic power is the Buddhist thinker, the Vietnamese thinker, Thich Nhat Hanh. And uh, he's written a, a wonderful book, really, called The Art of Power. 
that has exercises for really how to gain power, personal power, authentic power, to understand power within yourself, and then really to share it with others. So the idea of power sharing after you have authentic or personal power. And uh, I've read that book several times, and it's helped me think about power quite differently. Can you share that exercise? I mean, that's something that I think is so helpful, and it's something that I see a lot of my clients, whether uh, women or men, and of all ages, they mm-hmm. kind of struggle. I think they understand a general concept of personal power, but to actually have a practice of what that looks like, what that mm-hmm. feels like, I think that's something that's currently missing. I think the idea, you know, we just talked about it a little bit earlier, looking at your feelings and uh, maybe the behaviors you would like to bring about and even examining your thoughts, kind of sticking with that model. And then what TikTokan suggests is that you sit down in a quiet place, you first work on calming yourself and calming your thoughts before you focus in this area. So it has some similarities to meditation, but it's a bit different. And then you really look at, you know, as deeply as you can with the goal of thinking deeply. Uh, so spending time, really, when you're not thinking about other things, you don't have your devices on, about what you would really like to effect or what you feel or what your thoughts are about your own power. And uh, just the idea that you have power is important because everybody does. And uh, even those that don't, have, the absence of power is still a certain type of power. So I think recognizing that is important, but then spending time on that for yourself so you get a better idea of what you would like to accomplish or what you already think you're accomplishing or what your other feelings are around power. And then looking also at other people. So let's say you have a primary relationship. What does that person want? What feelings maybe are they trying to bring about? Are they trying to control you? Or are they trying to influence you? You know, and how does that happen? And, uh, you know, these exercises sound complex, but I think once you start them, it becomes easier to really understand them. And then I think what you and I are trying to do is really talk about it. So have a conversation with a primary partner about what you've thought about this and Oh, not in an attacking way where you're trying to take power over me or you're trying to control me, which is, I think, how often these conversations start. But maybe the realization that you, as a person, feel like you're lacking power or you see yourself as having power in ways that maybe you didn't expect you had. Yeah, I see that a lot, actually, in terms of what came to mind as you were talking about that is I think... I don't know that there's so many people talking about the power dynamics in their relationship directly using those terms. What I see a lot of times is there's one person in a relationship who's often more angry. And a lot of times the other person doesn't understand where that anger is coming from. And in my experience, anger is about boundaries. It's about your personal boundaries, kind of getting back to the TikTokon idea. And so I think when you don't have words, sometimes you have the feelings. And it, mm-hmm. a lot of the work I see is me helping clients be able mm-hmm. to translate those feelings into mm-hmm. words that another person can understand. I think, Jennifer, you're talking about one of the most important things we do in therapy. Because so many people 
really have the feelings, but are not even aware of what they are. And this is especially true in the area of power where people feel angry because they're being controlled or their voice isn't being heard. There's so many ways to talk about that. And uh, then we get into the sexual arena and the feelings can be really very vehement and very deep. And the person has no real awareness of why they're even that angry. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think to build on that, too, is when it comes to discussions about sexuality and power, sexual power, I remember back in college, actually, talking with a lot of my male friends and my female friends and getting into really heated discussions about who has more sexual power. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of men express that, well, you know, women get to choose. So men are the ones who are rejected and therefore women are the ones with the power. And yet women often say, okay, men may, women may be the ones choosing whether or not to reject a man, but the man also has the choice about kind of who to approach. And I think it's very interesting because instead of being able to kind of have more of a back and forth, there's a real fixed kind of, no, I'm right, this is the perspective. And it's hard to sometimes have a real ongoing dialogue mm-hmm. rather than just kind of um, having these very fixed ideas. I, I, you know, as I t- listen to you, I, I think back to my own college experience, which sure. was in the 60s and, and early 70s is very different because uh pre-birth control, the early part of it. And so women lacked power around that aspect of it if they engaged particularly in sexual intercourse. Uh, But even more so, I think it often feels if you don't have conversations about sexual power, it feels like you don't really have it. And you, uh, many people, I think, feel that the other gender, you know, or if they're in a gay relationship, the other partner has more power, you know, and if you're not conversing or talking about it or sharing your ideas, I think that's going to come about from either gender, really, Mm -hmm. you know, and so I think it's an aspect really of not talking about sexual power that gives a lot of people the idea that they don't have it because they don't have control. If you're not talking about it, you lack your own control really in this area. But I think it's interesting too, Jennifer, because of our age difference, um, having grown up during the, you know, the late 60s, early 70s through the so-called feminist revolution, um, women were in encounter groups, you know, they were encouraged to t- recognize their power, take it on. And men were responding, I think, kind of with shock at that point in time. But many with delight that women were talking about it and bringing it up. There was a lot of discussion about female power at that time and how to acquire it, how to look for it, how to search for it. And then I think things actually changed in a way. And uh, it went back to more traditional models, you know, where men and women felt, you know, in some ways that women had, you know, the power to choose and men were the ones that were making the initial entree. So I think it's changed over generations, really, too. And I think we're at a different place today even with this. And bringing up, Mm. kind of building on that about today, what I see is kind of as hookup Mm. culture becomes more of a norm, I think that's some of the effect of it too, is Mm. that it both is empowering for some women, and yet it's also 
disempowering for some women in the way that it's empowering for some men and disempowering for some men. And I think it's such an interesting topic because so much of that is about the power dynamic in the sexual realm. And yet, instead of talking about that component, a lot of times it's just talking about, well, is hooking up good? Is it bad? But you're not really talking about, well, how is the power shared? Is it shared? Do people even understand what that even means? Yeah. I, I think here with hookups, uh, just uh, many of the patients that we work with and many of the friends we have, they're involved in the hookup culture. And, you know, it's an experience, I think, that uh, to be in the sexual world, it's one that many people are open to. There's even a word for it now, sociosexuality, which is really how you approach these relationships, the hookup culture. Probably hookup culture didn't sound scientific enough or <laughs> Probably, something like yeah. that. You know, but, but it's an interesting area. And uh, what it really means is you engage in sexual relationships outside of a romantic frame. So... And I think there's the belief in, by some researchers that uh, women actually do better in hookup culture because they, uh, you know, at least uh, are able to hold on to some of their own values through it, whereas men become, in some ways, you know, more disengaged from sexual relationships by participating in extensive hookup culture. We're not talking about a few hookups. We're talking about that's your primary mode. Right. So I think it's that, again, is a power thing, but it gets back to, you know, if we're talking about power sharing, you have to be talking about it. Exactly. It's hard to talk about it in a hookup because you don't have, you got to have the sex and you're going to sleep some maybe a little bit and there's not much time really for the conversation to take place. Yeah. And I think another thing that comes up for me is working with my younger clients is I think they see maybe their older siblings engaging in hookup culture and they see that, you know, their sister feels empowered. So they think they will too. But I think it's very different as you go through life. If you have friends and you're talking more about power and dynamics, I think that changes how you enter into a hookup type relationship. You know, mm -hmm. if you have done some exploration about personal power, then I think hookup culture can be very empowering because you feel very in charge of what you want. You know mm -hmm. what you want. You know somewhat how to get what you mm -hmm. want. And you now have that as an option. I think, though, that for much younger, in particular females, but not just women, I think it can be a lot harder because if you don't understand necessarily what personal power is, then it's very easy to enter a more traditional power over dynamic, mm -hmm. but particularly one where women are seen as more submissive. Yeah. Um, you bring up, I think, a good reason why... Uh, there's all the the views uh, from, you know, religious subgroups about why young teens shouldn't be having sex. And I think part of it, an important one, is they really do not have a sense of their own power and identity. Yeah. And if you don't have that, you're entering a power arena really without the tools. So I think we can think of it like a, you know, a sports arena. You don't have the tools. You're going in there. And you're vulnerable then to really being pulled into, as you said, into these power over relationships. And uh, that's a big problem that we see with teens that we work with that, uh, you know, 
forgetting about some of the other concerns or so many other risk-taking concerns with teen sex. But one of the dangers is really the emotional power-taking that you can get into. And you can take power over another person or you can be submissive and lose your power in those relationships. And it role models then for the rest of your life or, you know, until you really look at that pattern. It's a hard, hard pattern to get out of. So I think doing power exercises early in teen years would help with that. You know? I think so. And I think to bring up, too, that I don't mean to exclude men and boys here. You know, I think there are a lot of men and boys that would prefer a relationship. And I think... To emphasize that hookup culture also affects that too, because a lot of men and boys feel they need to be participating in that because that's what they're supposed mm -hmm. to be doing and that's what mm -hmm. they should be doing. And many of them don't want to. Mm -hmm. Well, you're talking some, or you're alluding to, I think the different ways that power, sexual power is looked at in our culture. And there's the kind of blatant power over there's the authentic or personal power that we were really talking about. But there's also hidden, you know, the latent and then completely hidden uses of power. And the double standard, you know, the traditional double standard where women who engage in sexual behavior are cast in one light and men who engage in sexual behavior are cast in another right. is in that, you know, that latent area. So I think it's, uh, you know, if you don't explore that or you're not aware of that, then you're often trapped by it. And we see a lot of teens, boys and girls, trapped by those rigid double standards by age 14 or 15. Yeah, right? very young. And I think to be able to be a bit more explicit about that, I think what you're talking mm -hmm. about is the more obvious kind of thing is when, you know, girls are slut-shamed mm -hmm. and boys are seen as like the sex birds or studs. Mm -hmm. And in terms of more of the latent thing, I think a lot of that can be harder for people to recognize because it is latent. But that might be more of a thing where you avoid saying something to a person because you're afraid of how they'll retaliate. Or, you know, I see that a lot in relationships. You know, oh, I can't say this to them because I don't know how they'll react. It won't be good. And that's a power over type situation, but it's less obvious. Right. I or mean, faking orgasms. We've talked about that too. Yeah, those are, you know, both these are two, I think, really important subjects. So often people, boys and girls, hold back from their partners and men and women mm -hmm. because they're worried about emotionally how the person is going to react. And, and this kind of, sometimes referred to as passive-aggressive behavior, um, is a latent use, really, of power. They've got power over you if you can't have the open conversation about what do you want, this is what I want, which would be an open exchange. So it's hidden. Um, the subject of orgasm, I think, is a really interesting one because I think girls, the research indicates that girls confuse their partner's desires you know, and pleasure with their own. And they equate the partner having pleasure, let's say in oral sex, and the boy comes and there the boy's pleasure becomes the primary focus right. of their desires. And that is a, it's a difficult one when you set up that pattern. And, uh, you know, it leads to then you not knowing your own desires or contributes to that. Let's put it that way, because you haven't explored them. And you're now focused on somebody else being satisfied sexually. 
and you've really shifted, you know, your focus, it's really a, a huge problem. Well, I think it's also very complex because I think we're at a state where more people would overtly say that they support egalitarian relationships. But as therapists, you know, this is my experience. I think it's yours as well. A lot of relationships are not that way. And yet a lot of people believe they are in egalitarian relationships. And so I think to be able to slow down and explain some of these power dynamics and that it isn't always so obvious and that it can be something where it's like, well, do you actually enjoy that? Have you ever thought about what else you might like to do? Or have you thought about, well, maybe he should perform oral sex on you first. Maybe that's mm-hmm. something you want. You know, maybe mm-hmm. it's not, but maybe it is. And I think it's one of those things where, again, because it's such a hard thing to see for so many people, already sex can be hard to talk about. And that's part of why we're doing mm-hmm. this, these different podcast episodes. And if you put on top of that some of these more latent power dynamics, I think that just makes it very, very complex for a lot of people. And you have to be able to slow down and have somebody who understands those dynamics be able to point out to you Mm -hmm. what is going on. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Jennifer, because I have had patients in therapy for years who have been involved in relationships where they faked orgasm. And um, then they have to work their way out of that because by that time their partners have really come to accept this situation. And so you've got a couple different things that have to happen. One is they may have to learn how to really have an orgasm, which is the subject of a separate podcast. Really, how do you do that when you've never had it? And where do you go with that? But I think, too, you have to then think about a conversation, as you were saying, where you redirect it and say, look, this is what we're doing. But I really looked inside myself as we were talking about, and this is not my desire. And we've got to, you know, just readjust this situation. You've got to have that type of conversation. And that is very difficult, I think, for people to do if you haven't done it in 20 years. Right. And I think on top of that, too, is the whole idea of if you buy into the idea that in, for example, using the same example, that in performing oral sex on your partner, that that brings you great pleasure, then you may not see kind of the Mm -hmm. power dynamic there. And if Mm -hmm. it does give you great pleasure, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. I think you have to be able to evaluate, though, like, why is... Why is it that you're doing this? And is it really what you actually want? I think what it brings up for me is this idea of, particularly in California, I see, you know, the shift from no means no to yes means yes. Mm -hmm. Maybe say what that is just for our listeners, because, you know, in California, we're we're indoctrinated in yes means yes, but... Well, it's the idea that you want affirmative consent, which is that you want to have an ongoing dialogue with your partner as you escalate any sexual behavior at each moment that shows that they are affirming that they want to do something and engage in a sexual activity with you. Whereas before the no means no meant, well, if you don't want to do something, then you need to be able to say no. And I think it's a positive flip in terms of now you're looking more for that positive response at the same time where I see the gray area and 
this comes from working with a lot of my clients is there are a lot of clients that don't feel that they can actually say yes or they don't feel that they can actually say no and so it becomes well maybe they say yes to something because they feel coerced Mm-hmm. Or maybe they say yes to something because somebody pleaded and they just kind of are like, okay, let's just get it done. And I think that's much harder than this black and white, no means no, yes mm-hmm. means yes. Mm-hmm. But that's what's going on in the bedrooms or, you know. Mm-hmm. And this leads to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, that you've got to have a process where you look inside at your own desires and really how you're going to then exercise them or exert that power. And you've got to have a conversation with your partner. So you really got these other two pieces. And if you go along with it, feeling differently, you know, you're really vulnerable to a lot of tough spots down the road and puts strains on the relationship. It puts strains on the relationship and it's hard to change a pattern once it's established. So a lot of times, as you just mentioned, is you know, maybe you've been going along with something, but maybe you engage in a conversation with a colleague or a peer mm-hmm. and you start thinking about these power dynamics. If you try mm-hmm. to change them within your relationship, that does cause tension. And that's not a bad thing necessarily. That's mm-hmm. not what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. But it does bring up, you know, that, well, you've been going along with this. So why is it different now? And with, a let's say, we'll take a t- a woman patient I've sure. seen for maybe 20 years, and she came to me around the whole question, because her daughters were actually asking her about having orgasm, how to have it, and she realized she'd never had it, uh-huh. and thought she's going to go in for therapy and really find out about it. And it chose me, I think, largely because, you know, I'm known for doing some work in this area. And uh, I think with her, she had a lot of, of questions about, you know, how do I bring this up with my husband of 20-some years? And, you know, eventually we worked on, she could bring it up through the conversations with the daughters. The daughters are pushing right. us to talk about this. I've got to become better able to. But what she first did and, and what I really supported was she talked to friends. She engaged in conversations with her female friends and even a male friend about orgasm, you know, what was involved with it, how they discussed it, and that helped her a great deal. And then, of course, she educated herself and worked on her own orgasm history and how to develop those. But all of this, I think, prepared her, these other conversations, to then talk to her partner and then be ready for her daughters when they wanted to converse about this. Yeah, and I think that's so powerful. It's wonderful that her daughters were at a place where they wanted to talk to their mom about that kind of yeah, no, and this is changing. For all the moms and dads out there, I think, uh, you know, if your child is well-educated and they're open, and open is a big part of it, they might ask you about it. They might ask you about masturbation. They might ask you about orgasm. They might ask you about sex toys. So I think to be more aware of these things yourself and, you know, at least be ready for it or thinking about it. yeah. And I think what's so great is that word open. You know, I think even the concept of open as being a powerful thing is so, is so powerful. I just said that. But anyway, <laughs> it's, it's so amazing to me because I think before the concept of power over is a very rigid kind of power structure. And what you're talking about in terms of personal power, it's much more fluid. It's much more open. And I, 
I think that that's just such a healthier way to be able to share power is to have that be fluid, to have it be able to go back and forth and to be able to have these ongoing dialogues. And I think that that can be more challenging because then it isn't this sort of one and done decided thing, but it really is a conversation that is ongoing. And you, I think, bring up the important point that power sharing isn't that you know, it's a fluid movement. One person has power now, and the next moment the other person has power, and then the other person has it back again. And it moves through different periods of life, really. And that's important, I think, for people to realize. It's not set in stone, really, who has the power. One other thing I think it's important to talk about, thinking about this woman patient, she had, whenever she had power, had the feelings of being somewhat an imposter, you know, and I think a lot of women in the work world, when they have power, and this woman was very successful in mm-hmm. her job. She was, you know, consul for an, uh, a group of attorneys and really very knowledgeable in one area. And she had a lot of work-related power in her field, but she constantly had the feeling that she really did not deserve that power, that she was really an imposter sitting in the room. And I think often, or at least sometimes, when women have power, they have the feeling that it doesn't really belong to them, that it's not really theirs, that they don't belong there, they don't deserve to be there. And uh, there are many reasons, I think, for this, but I think it's something we have to be alert to uh, with people we're working with. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to build on that is this idea of what I see a lot of the times is when when a client of mine notices that there is a power imbalance, more likely if they are a woman, they question what they see and they sort of rationalize it away. And I don't know that that's exactly the same thing that you're talking about, but I think it plays into that very much. I think what you bring up is very important. The imposter syndrome is kind of a a wider scope of that. But I think for women, instead of saying, you know, why do I have these feelings? They question their own feelings. They question their own power instead of just accepting it. And you want to have a period where you explore your feelings, you know, as, as we were talking about earlier, kind of a private meditation But then when you approach the world, I think to feel confident Mm -hmm. in your power, in your beliefs, in your desires, because women, you know, there was the recent book really about the confidence gap for women, and that's in the work arena, but the same is true sexually. Women have a lot of feelings of being an imposter, you know, when they're the sexually dominant person, even Mm -hmm. for that moment, when they take charge of the sexual relationship. So it's really that whole arena, and they question their own desires and their own beliefs about sexuality. And I think to even acknowledge that women have desire sometimes is very hard, and I think that's a whole other conversation topic that we can talk about, but it's very related to power, because if you don't necessarily know what you want, or you can't even acknowledge that you possibly want something, it's very hard to stand in personal power and exercise that. Yeah. And part of that, you can explore through these meditations, seeking out your desires and power. Uh, Some, you know, we're going to talk probably a whole podcast about 
masturbation and, and different techniques for that and increasing your own sexual desire and all of that and through reading and, you know, films and online and masturbation. There's many ways to do it. But you have to be aware of your own desires, really, in these interactions. Because if you're not, you know, power over can easily happen, easily happen. You can see other people's desires as your own. Exactly. Yeah. So all of this is really designed, I think, to help our listeners out there really uh, raise their own questions about power and sexuality. And at extremes, power over can lead to very emotionally abusive relationships, sexually abusive relationships. And how you bring yourself out of that is a real important part of the work that we do, too. Yeah, and I think a lot of the work that we do, too, is helping people understand their sexual power because it can be a powerful, empowering type of force in your life, and it can be a very positive force. And I think being able to harness it is not something that a lot of women or men are taught how to manage, nor are they taught how to manage it within a relational context. Well, at this point, I think uh, it's been a powerful subject, Jennifer, and we'll put it to rest for uh, this particular time. But I think we've really got a lot uh, to learn in this area. And uh, this is an area that's just, I think, in terms of research, is just beginning to be explored, is really how does power affect sexual relationships. And there's really very little available for children and adolescents, really knowledge about that. So we'll come back to this topic at another time. Yeah, so I just wanted to add a little bit there too. In terms of the research, what's very interesting is a lot of the research currently mostly just looks at, one, heterosexual couples, but also very much comes from this standpoint of looking through the traditional model of power over And so I think what you're talking about is the research is expanding. They're looking at how does power work in homosexual couples? Is it different? Because the gender obviously is the same there. And I think that's going to really contribute a lot to our understanding about how this power dynamics play out and how they're negotiated among same-gendered couples. I think that you bring up a very good point that that often looking at alternative relationships and and gay couples really brings up that whole area and educates us about the whole group of sexual relationships. Well, particular Um, with bisexual couples, what's really interesting is because they may have sexual relations with people of either gender, you get to explore ideas of are those relationships different? Do they play into gender roles or are you choosing maybe relationships differently. There's so many questions, and I think it's so exciting. And hopefully we can come back and talk more about trans and bi, because I think it brings up the whole idea of uh, some of the patients we've worked with have even had different power dynamics depending upon the different gender, the different age, the different type of patient they're involved with. And this is a whole really interesting area. And before we stop, I think to even mention, you know, there's a whole area, the sad area in our field, and we both work in this area of really pedophilia, you know, and uh, what to say about that. We're going to spend, you know, another podcast really talking about this area because it's so important. But it does bring up, you know, people who would primarily choose a relationship that has a very different power dynamic. You know, and often the sexual aspect of pedophilia is focused on instead of the power aspect, and that is really so key. It is so key, and I think, you know, that's 
a perfect example of how this extends so much beyond just our kind of common conceptions of the heterosexual mm-hmm. power dynamics. And it's just so much bigger. And I want to end with the idea that this is really just an intro. We're just scratching <laughs> the surface here. There's so much more. And hopefully we get to explore some of each of these things in much more depth. Come on. Let's talk about sex. This episode of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen is not intended as a substitute for seeing your own mental health provider. We are here to initiate conversations about sex. Let's keep the conversations going. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingSexPod or email us at TalkingSexPodcasts at gmail.com. We also want to give special thanks to Nathan Diffie for our podcast cover art, and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers.